Again, Mark 8, 27-30. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. If I asked you right now, let's go watch a movie. Let's head down the street, watch a movie. What are you in the mood for? What are you in the mood for? Are you, uh, how many of you are in the mood for seeing a documentary? You know, you want to learn something? There's one, two people. That's, that's a little disturbing. <laughs> okay, uh, what about, who wants to see a romantic comedy this morning? Who would be in the mood for a romantic comedy? Okay, raise your hand. Now, what about a real comedy? A real comedy? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I want to distinguish between those. Sorry, that's harsh. I know. What about an action movie? Who wants to see an action movie this morning? It's just a guns blazing. Yeah, come on, don't be afraid. General. Okay, yeah, look at this. This row, I like that. Have you guys ever noticed uh, one of the hallmarks of an action movie is, uh, and think, by the way, Mission Impossible, think James Bond, you know, think the Bourne Identity series, um, Jason Bourne, it introduces new scenes, even at the beginning of the film, by giving us the lo- name of the location. The name of the location where the movie is taking place, where the next scene is taking place. So it might say St. Petersburg, Russia, or like Istanbul, Turkey, in this sort of classified typewriter font, right? In fact, I think uh, Istanbul, Turkey was the opening scene for uh, Skyfall, the latest James Bond movie. The reason I think this is is because when the action moves swiftly, knowing the location is doubly important because as an audience, we have to kind of quickly right, recalibrate our internal GPS, like where are we, what's going on, and it also helps us anticipate what might be happening next. Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks, they can fall in love anywhere. Tom Cruise, Matt Damon, Daniel Craig, they got to set coordinates, yo. I mean, they got to find the location of the bad guy, locate secret lab, you know, the secret lab where they clone bad guys, or, you know, find the microchip hidden inside someone's shoe that will transform the whole world into bad guys, right? They got to know this. So location, location, location. Of the four biographies about Jesus that the Bible calls Gospels, Mark's is the action gospel. Like the action film, it's the action gospel. His favorite word is immediately. He loves to say immediately, get get us to the next scene. Followed by, he loves to say at once, from there, and went on. Mark likes to move us along, all with abbreviated dialogue, by the way, which a lot of us, especially of the male gender, enjoy. We, do, we like less dialogue. Move us along so we can see Jesus and his Messiah mobile kind of move along, right? Turbojet, hydroplane, somewhere else. And that's what Mark does. So accordingly, location carries great significance in Mark. I realize this more and more as I just soak in this gospel. So in our scene we're going to see today, Jesus moves north for the last time. He moves to the outer edges of Israel with his apostles, never to walk north again. It says in verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And the location of Caesarea Philippi, friends, is important on two fronts. Uh, Jesus is back to retreating uh, with his apostles to beyond, or at least the outer edges of Israel, without the weight of, of existing religious expectations and traditions upon him and confusions. Jesus has been retreating recently to places like Tyre and Sidon, to places like the Greek Decapolis, to show the apostles fresh examples of personal faith. Now, Because Caesarea Philippi was the closest city to a place called Dan, back to that in a moment, 
rabbis considered Caesarea Philippi as the boundary line between the Holy Land, Israel, and all the Gentile territory up north. Holy Land, God's people, all non-Holy Land, non-God's people. You may have heard the phrase in the Old Testament before if you've read it, from Dan to Beersheba, which just means from the northern tip of Israel to the southern tip of Israel. And so Caesarea Philippi was the closest sort of city to what was known as the ancient Dan in the Old Testament. And so it was considered, this is the boundary line between God's land, God's people, and everyone else. And this is the place that Jesus gets his apostles away to. It was a center for religious worship, but not of Israel's God. Once for a, a God called Baal, then for the half-man, half-goat, the Greek god, Pan. I know your, your favorite Greek god. And most recently, it was a center of worship for Caesar himself, the human king who got so you know, inflated that he wanted to be worshipped. Hence, the recent name change to Philip's Caesarea. Away from the pressure Jesus got, he and his disciples, from every religious sect of Judaism, but also from Herod. Mean, murderous King Herod. He was now up in Philip's territory. Philip was a tetrarch. He was kind of known as a pretty just and kind ruler. Why is all this so significant this morning? Because it emphasizes the importance of retreating to get away and consider for yourself Jesus' most important question for your life and mine. And that it doesn't matter your religious background or baggage. You may have come here this morning with lots of hurt, scarring, or just weirdness to religion, spirituality, an unopenness to God, but you thought you'd check out the church this morning. All that matters is personally and decisively responding to the person of Jesus. So before going further, if we do hope to enter this story, you and I must first kind of join with Jesus and the apostles to retreat and consider who he really is. So let's pray for God to help us do that. Pray with me if you would. Jesus, we look to you for help this morning. Some of us believe you exist, Lord, and rose from the dead, and some of us don't. I believe you do. And so we ask, Lord, some of us will pray, even if you do, Lord, Jesus, help us, help us put away our religious background and baggage. Help us put away the pressures of life that the apostles experienced as well. Please quiet our hearts, even now. Quiet our minds to consider you for who you really are. Amen. Read with me Mark 8, 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Who do you say that I am? Um, This is the question that the first eight chapters of Mark have sort of funneled us into. This question, this moment, which is the most important question of your life. Trying to 
communicate. So what we'll look at this morning is some answers to this question. Then we'll take time to look at your answer to this question. And finally, what does your answer do? So first, some answers. Uh, And now while the answers given here in Mark might seem irrelevant and untimely for our modern day world, I hope you're going to see that they are in fact quite relevant. So first, the apostles answer back, hey Jesus, the word on the street is that you are John the Baptist. You are like John the Baptist raised from the dead. John was in fact the long-predicted forerunner to Jesus. He was the prophet who'd get people ready to hear about Jesus, kind of shake them up for their slumber, so they could be ready to hear Jesus for who he was. But most people didn't look at John the Baptist as the forerunner but as their prophet. He was their guy. You see, he was the first prophet on the scene for 400 years. 400 years. It's a long time. People read during that time wrote lots of sort of speculation on what the prophets wrote and how we could apply this to life and how this would work out, but they hadn't seen a real prophet for 400 years. That's a lot of generations gone by. Really almost 100 for the lifespan at that time. 400 years of silence from God, and here comes a guy who's both different, to say the least. Dresses in sackcloth, he eats locusts. Different guy, lives out in the middle of nowhere. And he's not afraid to speak truth. Hard things. Things that get our attention. And he gets beheaded for it. His life's cut short. And so springs up the cult of John. You know this from life. People get martyred at an early age or their ministry hasn't lasted long, or their, their life in the public eye hasn't lasted long. They die early. People make t-shirts for them. John, in this sense, had t-shirts made for him. Got more followers. Such that later in the New Testament, the apostles have to go to far regions of Israel to ask the question, but wait a minute, have you been baptized with John's baptism or Jesus' baptism? The baptism that will actually change you from the inside out. And most people, a lot of people said, oh, John. Because John, frankly, was the more popular dude at the time. People forgot now, though, that John insulted them. He called them, the religious people at the time, a brood of vipers. (laughs) Right? You're a bunch of snakes. He said that that their heritage, their background, their family tree got them nothing. And they forgot that he actually said there's someone more important than him who would come after him. But again... He was the prophet of my generation. He was my guy. Now, one of my heroes growing up, admittedly, this is kind of a shallow hero, but one of my heroes growing up was a basketball player named Michael Jordan. You may have have heard of him. You may not have. I don't know. Um, He was awesome. But anyway, uh, I consider him the greatest player, basketball player of all time. All right? Um, Five MVPs, most valuable players of basketball and the world. Uh, Six world championships for his team. He was my generation's greatest player. All right, now you have LeBron, and well beneath him, Kobe Bryant, and other people like that. All right, so, but many forget, myself included, that Jordan failed to break through many times before succeeding. He lost to a team called the Pistons, and they beat him up. He could never quite get to the championship game. He failed. He missed shots. He failed mentally. Wasn't tough enough. People forget that. Turns out he was also a bit of a gambler. 
Also, he was ruthlessly competitive. I mean, like, crazy competitive. Like, he would turn anything into a competition. Like, if he was at an airport with his team, like, arrival times for, for, for flights. All right, he would bet on that with, te- with teammates. Turns out he was a bit of a womanizer as well. So, um, point is that, uh, you know, there was some background to him. All right, yeah, in, in speaking with me, if you try to use these points against him later, I will tear you a new one. I don't want to hear it. He's the greatest player of my generation. You see, some people see Jesus as their idealized version of who they want God to be. This is who Jesus had become for this generation. The generation among whom the, the, the apostles walked. Oh, he's like John the Baptist. This is like our prophet. This is our guy, like John the Baptist. Their version has somehow become more true than the Jesus of history, who claims your total trust and allegiance. And so we say things like, well, the Jesus I know would never do that. Right? So for instance, the Jesus I know would never judge. Right? That's, that's the Jesus of my generation. People say the Jesus I know would never judge. Yet he says he's actually coming back to judge. He'll come back and judge the living and the dead. And thank God that he will because we need justice in this world. Yet, if you tell someone, that's not the Jesus I see in the Bible, it's hard to convince a person otherwise. It's hard to convince a person that their version of who God is is actually not what we see in history. So some said he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others people said, Elijah, he's Elijah. Now, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who worked miracles for others, but like none other. Um, fire from heaven for the small remnant who still worship God to show them, yes, he is God over Baal. Bread for a starving widow. Living breath for a dead son. Justice to a helpless poor man robbed by a king. At a final request, he leaves behind a double portion of his miraculous spirit power to help his successor. Four others but like no other. In fact, the last words of the Old Testament then tell us he's going to return. And that gets everybody in a frenzy. And you can imagine, it's been simmering for 400 years. When's Elijah coming? When's Elijah coming? Today, in fact, if you visit a Jewish Passover Seder, and you sit at one of the tables where they have the Passover Seder, you'll usually see one seat open. That's Elijah's seat. Why? Because they're waiting for him to return. Waiting for him to come back. Some people see Jesus as either wishful thinking for the weak or the secret to granting all my wishes. See, Elijah, people saw as this sort of miracle worker who would do great things for them, who would at one request change their life. That's who Elijah became in their eyes. And so today, people still see Jesus like that. Right? He becomes the secret password at the end of every prayer to make all my dreams and wishes and hopes and plans come true. No matter what. That's what Jesus does. If I just pray in the name of Jesus, or I just pray like this, or if I just speak this against the enemy, this will happen. And then there's others who've experienced the bitter reality of otherwise who secretly scoff at simpletons who indulge in such wishful thinking. Yeah, people just think Jesus is just going to help them with whatever. He's their crutch. He's the opiate for the masses. He's their wish fulfillment. 
The apostles list one more word on the street about Jesus. They say, others say, you're, just, you're one of the prophets. You're one of the prophets. Someone who speaks timeless words of wisdom to help us in our religious journey. Jesus is someone still today from whom we can, he's someone from whom we can learn, we can grow, we can be challenged, but he's one out of ten. Right? Add to him Gandhi. Add to him maybe Mother Teresa. Add to him uh, Oprah. Right? Add to him my, my grandfather, my rugby manager when I was in high school. Whatever it might be, I remember what this person used to say. Or it's like Jesus used to say. And that's who Jesus sort of becomes for us. Another word of wisdom. These are some answers to the question, who do you say that I am? But hopefully it's not your answer. Jesus asks this of the apostles, who do you say that I am? And speaking for the apostles, Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. Correctly answers, you are the Christ. His eyes are open, his ears finally hear. The disciples haven't gotten it to this point, but finally he says, You are the Christ. What does that mean? Is it just Jesus' last name? The Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, both of which mean anointed or anointed one. See, there are three groups set apart and anointed to lead God's people in the Old Testament. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. All right? And those who were called to speak the word, words of God, to rightly speak the words of God, were prophets. Those who were called to relate people rightly to God were the priests. They would help people get right with God and get right with other people. And then there were kings who were called to rightly rule the people of God for the glory of God. Does that make sense? So these are the three groups of leaders who are just to work together to sort of help embody Yahweh's rule of his people. Unfortunately, no one succeeds. No one does this rightly. Every person failed prior to Jesus. In fact, what's interesting is if you look at each ideal leader, idealized leader in their respective field, Moses is prophet, Aaron as the idealized priest, David as the ideal king, failed in the very ways for which they were called, equipped, and gifted. Moses, for instance, missed the words of God he loved so much, and so he angrily, in response, hit a rock, preventing him to go into the promised land. Because he missed the words of God, the words he was supposed to speak. Aaron neglected people serving and instead gave in to people pleasing, and so he built a golden calf, and that was kind of his downfall. King David lets selfish passions overrule a selfless rule. The very people he's called to lovingly manage and guide, the very people most actually faithful to him, he would selfish, selfishly rule for his own purposes. You see, this is not coincidental. We're supposed to see ourselves in these characters. Perhaps you relate, in fact, to this. Maybe like a prophet, you're, you're good, you're skilled, you're called and skilled at communication. Yet you know, in your heart of hearts, you know that your words fall short of loving your neighbor and loving God. Maybe like a priest, you're, you're quick to help others. You're quick to advocate for them, but 
you find first that your efforts and then your inner being is frustrated when helping hurts, when helping doesn't work, so you fall short. Or maybe you're more like a king. You're, you're really good at directing and managing people, whether it be a family, a corporation, a team, to find their potential only to find that you can't direct and manage your own life. And you fall short. I think you know of what I speak. I know I do. It's reality of what the Bible calls sin. Literally, to miss the mark, to fall short of God's perfect mark, who he intended us to be. And that's where Jesus comes in, the Christ. He is the one who rightly does in his life. You see him speaking the words of God wisely and powerfully. You see him ruling over creation perfectly. And you see him helping people get right with God, get right with others, to restore them with love. And so the Christ is the one who rightly does for the Father what we didn't, and so offers himself as the only one who can make you right with the Father. Isn't that good news? And to to kind of simplify this even further, he did right so that we could get right. That's what the Christ is all about. Jesus did right so you and I can get right. Who do you say that I am? Now, I recognize this morning that it is not probably the most immediate question you came at 10 a.m. this morning to hear, to think about even about God or spirituality. What's more likely to keep you awake is, does God exist? Is he good? Can I believe this thing called the Bible, or is it made up by people who just want to have power? Or even more likely, forget God or the divine, but how can I find satisfaction, contentment, and long-lasting joy in my life? That's the question I came here with. But... Who do you say that Jesus is, is the one question all of us will be asked. It's a question that you and I will be asked. If you're not asking it, it will be asked of you. The Bible says that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ and Lord. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ and Lord in heaven, on earth, or dot, 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 under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. He is the right one who could save us, who could make us right with our creator. So if on earth you trusted and confessed him as the only one who can make you right with your creator, you'll be confessing the same thing in heaven. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Lord. You are good and worthy of our praise. Otherwise, you'll be confessing the same thing under the earth. And if you're wondering where under the earth is in a biblical worldview, you've probably got it right in your head. It's the same place, yes. So I plead with you, don't leave the decision in the hands of others. Don't even, in one sense, leave it in the hand of God. Just say, oh, God will be fine. He's loving. He's just going to... God is also just. You... You need to deal with the question, who do you say that I am? Is Jesus not just the Christ, but your Christ? And if he is, here's what confessing him, as the only one who can make you right, here's what confessing him does in your life. Last thing here. 
Now, to, to get at this question, what does it do in our lives to confess that Jesus is the, the one thing right about me? We have to look to another gospel. Because Mark's action gospel leaves out some important commentary about Jesus' response to what Peter says here. You are the Christ. So you can turn to Matthew 16 to help understand what confessing Jesus as the Christ actually does in our lives. It's going to be up here on the screen as well, or you can turn to Matthew 16, 16 through 18. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of John or son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many, including those in the later Catholic church, have taken uh, the rock here in these verses to be Peter. He is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church, which, because Peter's name, sounds so similar to rock in Greek. Petra. It's a word for rock in Greek. But the early church fathers, way, way, way back, like Basil, and even early Catholic church fathers, like Augustine, didn't view it that way. And neither, by the way, did those who rediscovered reading the Bible for themselves in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and 17th century. All of whom viewed Peter's confession as the rock. Now hang with me here. They viewed Peter's confession, you are the Christ, as the rock. And I think they are right. You see, one of the helpful things about Greek, all right, is that the pronouns and articles get assigned a gender. All right, and so on hard sayings, on difficult things about Scripture, one of the helpful things is you can be more specific to see if it matches up. So Peter, for instance, was a masculine proper noun, right? A male's name, Peter. But this the, which we don't see here in the English, but this the and the rock are all feminine. All right, they are written in feminine. So you have masculine Peter, feminine the rock, this the rock. What does that tell us? that they don't match up. I think Matthew is trying to say, don't confuse the man Peter, the male, the man Peter, and the rock upon which Jesus built his church. The rock is the divinely revealed truth confessed by Peter. Jesus is the Christ. And on that rock, Peter, I'm going to build this church. The truth that I am the one who can make you right with God, with your Creator. And what does that do for our lives? Two things this morning. First, it it cements the reality of your new identity. If you trust that Jesus is the one who can make you right with the Father, that makes you a Christian. And it cements the reality of that new identity of being a Christian. To be clear, confessing Jesus is not a magic bullet. Right? Confessing Jesus is the only one who can make you right doesn't mean that you're necessarily a genuine Christian. It's not like this sort of like magic word you can say and all of a sudden, oh, I'm a Christian. Or I can take a class, like a confirmation class, and the confirmation class in and of itself makes you a Christian. Or praying a prayer. I went down and I prayed this prayer. That in and of itself does not make you a Christian. You have to also genuinely believe or trust that he is the one. Romans 10.9 says this, later in the New Testament, that if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord, right? There's that confession. And believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead. You will be saved. You will be rescued. You can be with your creator forever. So it's both that confession, but also a genuine belief. God raised this man from the dead to show that he is the one. So people who call themselves Christians, when they say, I'm a Christian, it's a declaration that Jesus, you are what's right about me. You are what's right about me, about the world, about eternity. You. Soon after I had first confessed Jesus as my Christ years ago, um, an author who taught me um, how much God loves to forgive sinners and mess, mess ups and crack ups like myself um, was a guy named Richie Manning. Richie Manning is the author of a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, as well as a book called Ruthless Trust. You may know him under a different name, but it was under this name, Richie, that he entered a foxhole in the Korean War with his friend, Ray Brennan. When a grenade landed next to both of them, a grenade from enemy attack landed next to both of them, and Ray Brennan calmly tossed aside candy bar wrapper, laid down stomach first on the, on the grenade, and it imploded, killing him, but not Richie, saving Richie's life. Years later, just before entering the Franciscan order of the priesthood, he was going to become a priest, Richie legally changed his name to Brennan in honor of his friend who gave his life for him. Then, fast-forwarding a little bit further, years later, Brennan became a famous speaker and author, very successful. But as he went along, he began to notice that his words stopped carrying the same weight. People weren't responding in the same way. And it just got him down. He even started to notice as his words carried a little less weight that he wasn't using his words to love people or love God the way he used to. In other words, he was falling short of the mark. It was in this state that He stopped off between flights in Chicago one day to visit his late friend's mother, Ray Brennan's mother. During the conversation when he sat down with Miss Brennan, again feeling kind of down about himself, riddled with doubt, Brennan asked the question, Miss Brennan, do you think Ray loved me? Do you think he really cared about me? And she looked at him with this this intensity. He said, have you forgotten your name, child? Have you forgotten your name? And she said, what more could he have done for you? What more could he have done for you to show you that he loved you? This was the case for the same man here who confessed Christ, Peter. In the very next breath, Peter falls short of the mark. Right? He pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus about his plan to rescue the world and make people right. We'll see in a couple weeks on Easter Sunday, Peter just says something out loud just to say something. It's pretty dumb if you've ever done that before. He just speaks just to say something. And he even denies knowing Jesus three times at Jesus' darkest hour. In the midst of such failure and doubt, why then does Jesus rename Peter Rocky, the stone? 
Because Jesus is setting before Peter what he will become through knowing and confessing Jesus as the Christ. You see, this confession begins to define Peter, giving his life an increasing bedrock until he's transformed solid as a rock. Peter recognizes that he can and eventually learns to return again and again to the only one who can make him right with God, to his name, Jesus the Christ. A person cannot forget his or her name, a Christian. And what more could Jesus have done for you? Confessing Jesus the Christ, reminding ourselves, you are the only thing that's right with me, Jesus. I come back to you. Just cements that identity. Gives us a firm foundation when most of our life is doubt. Second thing it does is you can participate with Jesus as he builds his indestructible church. Right? On this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Peter's the first guy to stand up after Jesus' resurrection and share the good news that Jesus is the Christ. He shares it with thousands. And he is the one, that Jesus is the one right with the Father. It can make you right with the Father. Right then and there, Jesus begins to build his church upon this truth. It's a wonderful thing you can read about in Acts chapter 2. After the dust settles, listen to how this is put later in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. He says this in Ephesians 2. So then you, who are now right with the Father, are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here's the building. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How great is it to participate in Jesus' building project? You get to participate in this. Now, Katie and I have an old friend, Sarah, who spent time doing missions work in China where, you may know, it's illegal to be a Christian, to be a confessing Christian. She returned one, you know, one season for furlough over a Christmas holiday, and I remember just being around her and asking her the question, when was it you first felt the risk, at least, of what you were doing being over there telling people about Jesus? about the Christ. She said, the first time I really felt it, Ryan, was when I was, I was listening to this guy when we first arrived for orientation. He was talking about an underground church that he was a leader of. It was a name named Brother Zong who shared his story. And she even told me that day, which was really interesting. She said, you're going to hear about his story. You know, we got to protect it now, but you're going to see it someday. And sure enough, this week I Googled Brother Zong. I misspelled his name a few times because I don't know Mandarin, very well. And then finally got it. And sure enough, I found his story. It was so cool. Here it is. I want to share it with you. I was attending a training course for my house church network's council members and youth leaders. And when the Public Security Bureau of China raided us the first day, all the leaders were arrested. The prison authorities shaved our heads and interrogated us. We were warned that the hardened inmates would beat us So with much trepidation, another brother and I entered our cell. We were greeted by the sight of 16 other inmates lined up in two rows, thumping their fists towards us. 
My heart beat rapidly, so I sent up prayers to God. The leader of the gang asked, why are you here? To which I replied, because we are Christians. You don't beat people up? No. We're Christians, I assured him. Do you sing? Yes, we're Christians, (laughs) I told him. The leader ordered me to sing a song. I wept as I sang. The Holy Spirit moved in our midst, and by the time I finished singing, every prisoner was also in tears. And to my shock, the gang leader then asked to hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Christ. After that, the cellmates hungered to hear the gospel. Every day, one Sunday, we held a worship service. The prison guard demanded to know who was behind it. He threatened to punish everyone in the prison if no one spoke up. So finally, I stood up and I confessed. I was forced to remove my clothes and stand at an inclined angle against the wall. When the gang leader, the gang leader couldn't bear it anymore, he asked to be punished with me. And all the other volunteers asked to do the same and volunteered to do the same. And the infuriated guard just stormed out. I was so moved by my cellmate's act. One of them, who'd been there for three years in prison, trusted his life to Christ that day. Most of us would say, well, you know, Ryan, I don't experience that kind of persecution, the kind which softens the soil in people's hearts to really change. Let me ask you, why is that? Why don't you experience some? Do you confess to others that Jesus is not just the Christ, but your Christ? Do you share with them that you believe everything that's right with you and that your only hope is Jesus and that indeed the only hope for any person to be right with their creator is Jesus? You may not be thrown in prison or face gang-related violence, but it will cost you. It will cost you, and people will take notice. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize this morning that we have a choice in this life. We have a confession we can make in this life that we'll someday have to repeat before you in the next Will I choose my righteousness or yours? Will I choose my right deeds, everything I've done right in the world, all my own goodness, or will I choose yours? I pray, Father, this morning that people would make the decision today to choose yours, that you are what's right. You are what's right and can make us right with our Creator. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.